welcome to series 8 of York Hospital Ball. Our first episode is with none other than Keith Houchin, the man who won and scored a last minute penalty against Arsenal in the FA Cup third round in 1985. Two years later, Keith memorably scored arguably the greatest ever FA Cup final goal with his diving header for Coventry as part of their 3-2 win over Spurs. Here, Keith tells the stories from his remarkable career. This episode is sponsored by York Gin, who are proud to sponsor the podcast and support York City. They are offering a 10% discount for York City fans on their YCFC Gin via their website, yorkgin.com. Yorkgin.com, using the code YCFC10 at the checkout. That's the code YCFC10 at the checkout. York Hospital Ball is a spin-off from York Hospital Radio, a charity who recently celebrated 58 years. As a charity, we rely on donations. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider donating via justgiving.com slash yorkhospitalradio. Justgiving.com slash yorkhospitalradio. But enough build-up. Here is the first episode of the new series with Keith Houchin. have you on the podcast Keith and I thought yeah, we'd start yeah, by discussing you. your route into football you know a natural ability but you know but I was researching both the house that you kind of grew up in and the primary school you went to were located really close to Ayrson Park so yes yeah. to sort of say that you know you had that inspiration to be a footballer almost on your doorstep oh definitely yeah I mean I came from an era they probably have it now with the Premier League and everything with kids all wanting to be footballers but I came from an era where the only way to get out really Middlesbrough was a really industrial town and you either went worked the in the docks and things like that as welders and things or you went and joined the army and sport was probably one of the only ways to to get out with the lifestyle you were kind of in, you know. And my brothers were better at certain sports than me. I came from a very sporting family. We weren't particularly academic, but we were very sporting. And uh, my elder brother was a real top-class middle-distance runner. And the brother below him was a top-class swimmer. He swam for the county and everything. And they were, I mean, we were all good at football, but I realised that I wasn't that good. When I did the running, I was good, but not as good as him. And when I did the swimming, I was good, but not as good as him. We were all karate. I mean, we were into everything, honestly. But with the football, and I didn't discuss really till I was about 10 that I was pretty good at it we had a primary school teacher came in from New Zealand it was like his first job uh, Mr Turnbull I always remember him at Sacred Art School and it was a little tiny school right next to Ayrson Park with a main road running past it with a tarmac playground we, you know, none of the stuff that you know, a lot of them get now. But I was just good at it and he was really keen on his football and he, he formed a team and had us training in the playground and taking us to other to other schools to play. So then all of a sudden I was getting that kind of playing against other people, playing against other teams, that sort of thing. And yeah, it went from there. I mean, I progressed really quickly. My football progressed really quickly. As soon as I went to secondary school, I was in the town team and I made it into the county team because it used to always be Yorkshire in the old days, but they changed the counties round. It became Cleveland. So that the first year of that, I was in that. And then I was invited down to Crystal Palace. I used to go down to Crystal Palace as a schoolboy with Terry Fennick and his brother, John, who was a goalkeeper, John Fennick, who's a get on the train, get off at King's Cross, stay in a hotel in just outside of Croydon and train with Crystal Palace and that. So, oh yeah, all of, I mean, all of that came quite quickly and quite easily. Breaking into professional football proved a lot harder <laughs> for some reason. Well, I've got down here that, you know, I was, I was fascinated researching your early career and you mentioned Crystal Palace there and I, I think the first time you went down there, I think you'd, 
I'm right in saying that your dad put you on a train at Darlington. Oh, put me on a train at Darlington on my own. Yeah, I was only yeah. 13, don't forget. Yeah. That's saying you went to King's Cross, expecting King's someone Cross. from Crystal Palace to meet you, yeah. and then someone didn't turn up. But that was, was an era was... where there was no mobile phones, so nothing it was like quite that, a scary no, no. sort of experience. Well, imagine getting off at King's Cross for the first time. I mean, it's, a, it's as simple as it ever was. It's probably nicer now. It wasn't a particularly nice place in the old days. Uh, yeah, they were running late. They'd got stuck at the ground. They got stuff stuck in London traffic, that sort of thing. And I didn't know what to do. Obviously, I was just a kid. So waited for a phone booth, found a phone booth after about after a couple of hours of waiting for me dad. I think he got onto the club. I, you know, he chased it up. But, you know, it was no mishap. They all turned up. They found me, took me in. Because I did go down on my own that time. The next time I went down, I actually met John and his brother on the train. They used to obviously get on. I think there was Sunderland or Newcastle lads. But yeah, yeah, then were the days, weren't there? Mobile phones now, you'd be texting all the way there and texting all the way back and there'd be no problem. You'd just sort it out, wouldn't you? But uh, yeah, little boy lost in London. That's some commitment, isn't it? Travelling to London in sort of pursuit of your dream. And and again, it shows a different scenario. Didn't they advise you to sort of start drinking Guinness as well? And well, that's sort of, the, the, maybe the summer after that when they told me they weren't going to take me on. John Cartwright and Terry Venables were coaching. Obviously, they were just coaching the youth and the younger lads. And it was Malcolm Allison and that that got me in the office and said, yeah, we, we can obviously see you. Capable, you know, we like the way that you can play, and we think you're capable of being a footballer. I was really skinny, really thin. I mean, Peter Crouch made a career out of it, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, but I was I was very much like a Peter Crouch type of thing as a kid, very long and skinny, and not a lot of strength, easily pushed off the ball and stuff. Which is one of the first things we worked on when I did turn pro at Hartlepool. They signed me just purely. I mean, I was I used to dribble. I was a dribbler and stuff. To be honest, I know I had a career as a big, strong centre forward you know, running the lines and holding the ball up and stuff. But I started as a pro because they couldn't get the ball off me when I went for a training session at Hartlepool. We were indoors and I was just dribbling around everybody. Billy Horner had invited me down to train with the first team. One of the first things they had to do even then was work on building me up, making me stronger, making me strong with a ball and being able to hold people off and jump without hurting the defender instead of getting hurt myself. 20 years later, when I was 36, I couldn't stay on the pitch because the, the things I was doing, it was becoming more and more of a non-contact sport so the stuff that I'd always been taught and you can't change so it was very difficult for me yeah towards the end I mean, you were top scorer pretty much the whole four and a half years you were at Hartlepool and I lost yeah, count, yeah. count in my research of sort of how many clubs were interested in you or made bids sort of Reading, Cardiff, Plymouth yeah, I think Sunderland yeah. wanted you Liverpool right, were sort yeah. of scouting the lower leagues and went for Ian yeah. Rush were you frustrated that you weren't allowed to leave sooner than you did? Oh God, yeah, I was in the I was in the office every day, I and mean, I was linked with everybody. I really and and that's how it used to work in the old days. So very, it was like you were doing your apprenticeship, if you like. You played through the the old fourth division, third division. When I eventually got top level, I was 25, 26. I knew most of the people I was playing against because I'd played against them in the in the fourth division and stuff. But oh gosh, yeah, I was in the. Uh, he was sick to death of me, Billy Orn. I was in every day. I had this phrase I used to say, I don't know where I'd got it. I was a kid, I probably did, but I tried to argue my cause and I was like, there's a train I need to get on and I'm going to miss it. <laughs> I don't know where I got it from. But yeah, and they turned down good money. They turned down about £100,000 from Cardiff at one stage. But I was still only 20 year old, don't forget. I was a baby, really. And I nearly went to Middlesbrough, but I always remember there was a big piece came out at the time about the assistant manager said something like, we, we, we would have taken him, but he's been in the fourth division too long. And I, I was like, Four year in the fourth division, top scorer at Hartlepool every season. I think it scored 
65 goals by the time I left. I just needed that, you know, that step, that next step to take the next step. Looking back, I probably could have played for more seasons because I was only I was only a kid. And maybe it wasn't the right move in the end because Ken Knighton had tried to take me to Sunderland, but he'd been overruled and they brought in Ali McCoyce. So as soon as he went to Leighton Orient and he, he had full sway over what was going on and they were making a real determined push for the first division, it was the first, I mean, everyone listening to this will obviously know it was the first, second, third and fourth in the old yeah. days. So, you know, it could have been a great move. It, there was nothing to think about. There was no time to think about it anyway. It came it, right on deadline, literally on deadline day. I think the banks and that were going to close the club. They needed 25 grand or 30 grand. They needed the money. He came in with a with a daft bid of £25,000 and I jumped on the train again. Me and Mark Lawrence drove down to Darlington. I jumped on the train and went down. And that was the start of it all, really. Never came home and my career just went you know, club, 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 club till the end then after that. And, and someone was there to meet you at the train station, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was a bit more uh, professionally done. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's ironic, isn't it? Because, you know, like you mentioned there, 25 grand they paid for you, but which is ironic yeah. really, because Hartlepool could have probably had four or five times that amount if it had told yeah, you yeah, when you yeah, wanted to yeah. go, when you wanted to catch yeah. that train. I yeah. mean, that, how do you look back on that stage of your career? Because there was a lot of expectation on that Orient team and yourself, but kind of it didn't quite work out. Did I know you got a didn't work to stop out. A, a double dip relegation against Sheffield United. It wasn't quite a move that you would imagined. I'd, I'd... No, it wasn't. It didn't. No, well, it didn't pan out the way. Uh, and I knew nothing about late night. I'd never even seen the club. I'd never played there. And I signed about just before the deadline, whenever you could, 11 o'clock at night or something, and then went and stayed and shared a flat with Ken Knight and actually a flat I ended up moving into. I think it was a place called Woodford Green. So I knew nothing about it. I never knew. I'd never seen the inside of the ground or anything but it was good I mean it was the whole thing was a learning curve I think I wouldn't change anything about my looking back on it I wouldn't change anything about it, uh, it everything I, that I ever did was a learning curve you know moving there Yvonne and I straight away moved to London we had, got married and it just kind of pushed us into that into the life really it made me grow up really quickly and it didn't pan out maybe it's, I think they signed a lot of all pros and then I was, the, obviously, I had a reputation as a goal scorer in the lower leagues and stuff. So I was going to be the one to provide the goals. But it's a difficult one signing a lot of old pros and, and lads that have played at big clubs. And then, I mean, the setup was amazing. It was it was set up like a big club. Everything was done for us. We had the cafeteria and everything. Whereas at Harleypool, we bought our own boots, bought our own kit. There wasn't room for everybody to get changed at once. You queued for the bath because it was tiny. In that respect, it was different, you know. And the way it wasn't like massive crowds because Leighton Orient was always everybody's like second club. So you might get four, five, six thousand. But it was great. It was a great learning curve. I learned to grow up. I bought my own house and we got married. We had Cara, our daughter. But the uh, the football, and I, yeah, I was very driven. I was so driven because I, I knew that I could play at the top level. I knew that I could do it. There was just something in me kept telling me you can do that, you know. And there's probably lots of players today doing it, playing at York City and players. Of course they are because players, you know, you're never going to change that mindset, are you? So I knew that I could and, and it was just a kind of reset two years, two and a half years later. It wasn't happening and I could tell it never was and it was, it was reset really, right? I need a club that's going to get me stepping forward again. And then Dennis and Viv came in. I mean, that was like a dream at the time. I mean, it was unbelievable to think what I was in at the time because I was struggling and I'd fallen out with Ken. Ken had gone and I'd fallen out with um, Frank Clark. Me and Frank Clark never really got on, which was strange really because we were probably the only two Northerners 
kicking about at the club. I just was desperate to go and start again. And it was York City. It was was back up near home so I could get home a little bit. And they were flying in the league. I knew that, but I didn't know anything about it. Oh, but God, what a dressing room. What a team. <laughs> what a setup it was at the time. It was unbelievable. I mean, it was it was the next best thing to play at the top level, to be honest. It was you couldn't you couldn't have walked into anything better than me walking into York City when I did. I, I love Danny Smith's quote when you when you did go to York City in 1984. He said anyone who scores 60 odd goals for Hartlepool must have something about them <laughs> I which, which that, I thought yeah. was a great great quote yeah. and an eventful it's very true at the time you. and an eventful debut for you as well at Aldershot yeah. I mean, you came on for Steve yeah. Senior I think broke his leg he you broke scored. his leg Steve yeah you missed a penalty and you got booked I'm just so excited to be part of it I remember the first time when he to, they were playing at home and I went in to meet them all in the dressing room and it was just it was catching the enthusiasm that was bubbling away in the dressing room the way they all were and the way they spoke to me when I walked in the dressing room it was just amazing and you could just sense I'd been a pro footballer then for like six years and I'd only ever been used to losing winning the odd game and losing and it, you know mentally it really can drag you down and I could just sense this whole gra- even listening to the supporters when I sat in the stand it was like they expected to win I think they went a goal down or something like oh never mind York City come on then I was just full of adrenaline on my debut I was just wanted to get out there and play and I was flying flying around like a maniac I think he put me in midfield Dennis Smith saw me as a midfield player for some reason I'll never know why you know John Byrne Walwyn was so prolific that he almost yeah. had to cut you in midfield yeah. you were almost like a number 10 before number 10 sort of existed I think yeah they call it oh, the, when I, I don't watch a lot of football now but they call them false nines and yeah. all sorts of things now don't they number 10s and things but yeah sitting in the hole I wouldn't even say I sat in the hole really I think when he decided to play me midfield he basically said do as much as you can in there I don't want you to be a playmaker I don't want you to go chasing around winning the ball back but do as much as you can but just keep watching the play just keep watching the play and as soon as we're going because I mean we had amazing wingers and that did we Gary Ford and Piercy and people and then you know and I could just watch John and Big Keith heading in the box and there's, there's always like in them days there's always like a big gap between them and what was coming out of the box and so I could just watch the play going on and I knew exactly when it was going to come in and where it was going to fall I think I finished up top scorer didn't I with about 19 goals the from midfield season. yeah yeah which was incredible really and that, that was basically it yeah just uh, and he, he saw me as like we used to have chats about it because obviously I, I was I always wanted to be a centre forward and I saw myself as a centre forward but Dennis used to say watch uh, John Walk there's nobody like John he, he, Said you like John Walk. He does a lot. You don't see him spraying the ball about and stuff, but he just arrives in the box when nobody expects him to and scores goals. And you can do that. But I was always, I mean, I was quite stubborn with managers and coaches. I never, I never stayed anywhere longer than two years. Remember, it was just my my personality. Maybe as if I'd taken it in and really worked at it, maybe as I could have been the top midfield player. You know, even likes of um, Ray Kennedy who has just passed away. If you remember him, he was a centre forward as a young as a youngster at Arsenal and stuff. And he never, you wouldn't have described him as um, inventive midfield player. But he just used to arrive late. He used to follow the player, get in the box and score goals. Obviously, I was doing it at a lower level, but that's what I was doing, yeah. And you, and you mentioned before as well about every club was a bit of a learning curve. So I guess this was a, yeah. a learning curve as well, wasn't it? Learning a new, new position and, and learning Definitely. about the game. Yeah, learning about the game, exactly. You're learning all the time, yeah. Um, I mean, you set up um, a goal for John Byrne on the final day against Bury, where, where the, the crowd looks, I mean, it's a bit before my time, but the crowd looks looks fantastic when you watch it back on the yeah, YouTube. Yeah, it was, yeah. I mean, did, did you feel a, a full part of a celebration? Because you, you joined quite late on in the season, hadn't you? I felt a part of the whole thing. About the time it got to the last game of the season, it felt totally part of everything. I think I missed out on a medal by about 
uh, a game or two games or something. It wasn't very much. That, by the way, was the pass of my career, that pass to John Byrne. I can still see that in my mind's eye. There must have been half a dozen players between John. I could see the, the run that he was making and he literally ran onto it and passed it into the net, didn't he? It's the one I'm yeah. thinking of. Maybe that could have been a midfield player. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a very satisfying sort of looking back yeah. on it, thinking, well, no, I've got a midfielder, but, but that was a great, great pass. Yeah, no, it was great. And the celebrations and everything that day, just the crowd coming out of the... I mean, it was just amazing. Bootham was a great ground, great little ground. Yeah. Just a great place to play. Yeah, it was. Great atmosphere. You know, we mentioned before about John Byrne and, and, and Keith Walwyn and, and John McPhail yeah. as well in that... Is, uh, is is very ill um, and obviously we send yeah. our best wishes to, to, to of course we family. do yeah yeah I mean yeah. how good were those players that you were playing with I mean in terms of I mean obviously you've, you've had such a you've gone on to achieve great things but where do they sort of fit in terms of the best players that you've ever played with they were as good as anybody I played with well and the, you know the, some of them your John Burns and your Gary Fords and your John McFields, they played top level they went and played top level it was it it was inevitable really they were just they were that they were just Good, good players. And then we had players who played top level. I mean, Ricky Sabrasia was as good a defender as I ever played with. Yeah. Uh, Sean Hasselgrave. Just, Sean Hasselgrave, we had a lad at Coventry when we won the Cup called Lloyd McGrath. And his job was to ferret around and get the ball, win it back and then get us moving again. And Sean Hasselgrave, I mean, he played top level. That'd be at Stoke and stuff. But he was doing that then, you know, ferreting around, getting the ball back, keeping it moving. If the other team got the ball, he'd go and get it straight back. And we just, yeah, we did. We had, we, we just had some great players. And we had good players coming through as well. Don't forget, Marco Gabbiadina was coming through, went on to play at top level. I, I think Dennis and Viv were top level. They were as good as anybody I, I played. As coaches and managers, they had everything because they, they got on with you. They had they had great ability in training, how they wanted you to play and making training so much fun and that. But just so, so good at man management. Some managers couldn't man manage to save their lives. Some man managers, you just didn't want to. I'd turn up on Saturday sometimes and I just didn't want to play because the man management was just that bad, the way they used to speak to you and stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. So there was just a lot going on at York and it was, it was all coming together for everybody. We were all heading... Up. We were all heading in the right direction, which is exactly what I was after, you know. And it was great fun as well. Great dressing room for having fun and that, you know. Sort of following season, your first full season at York City, you really established yourself, didn't you? Scoring 18 in all competitions, hat-trick against yeah. um, Gillingham in a 7-1 win, scored against QPR in the League Cup. But of course, it's the FA Cup where you're best remembered. I mean, we'll come on to the yeah. Arsenal game, but you scored in the two prior rounds as well, didn't you? Against Blue Star, I think, in round one. And then at Hartlepool in round two, in front of eight, eight and a half thousand. I mean, that must have been really satisfying. I didn't know if that was your first time you'd ever gone back to Hartlepool. Do you know, I've never thought about them games in all these years. I, now that you've told me, I, yeah, I can remember them now, yeah. I think it was probably the first time I'd gone back to Hartlepool, wasn't it? And, then I, and I didn't realise it was a bigger crowd as that either. Eight and a half thousand. Gosh, it must have been rocking. That was that would have been a full house at Hartlepool. But yeah, it would have been. I would have, I would have loved it, yeah, obviously. Yeah, going back and scoring and stuff. But you never know. With cup runs, you know, you don't know. You, you know, you play one and you want to win it. But you never... I, I always said that when we actually won the cup with Coventry. You don't, you don't realise you're on a cup run so sometimes uh, until you're on a cup run kind of kind of jumps out on you you know I mean the Arsenal game obviously is, is massive and, and that's you know what you, you remembered for with, with York City fans did, did yeah. you ever sort of get nervous I mean you know match of the day cameras were in work there was a massive crowd um, is, is it different when you wake up on a morning like that do, does it feel different oh no it's not just another game it does feel different you get a real buzz I chose football when I was a kid because I never got nervous if I was running 
I used to get really horrible butterfly if I was in a swimming or karate or any of the things I used to do. Football, no, I never got nervous. And I, I knew I didn't have to be nervous. I knew I could deal with, with the game when I was playing. But you got like a real buzz, like a, you know, like a real buzz. And that was my first taste of it. I think we'd, we'd drawn Leeds at home when I was about 17, 18 at Hartlepool, the old Leeds United team, which was a massive thing. And that was like a little glimpse that I'd seen. We got absolutely hammered and it didn't go particularly well. But So it was the, this at York was the first time where you're in a really good side, so you have a chance of doing something. And then something really exciting is that, because we all knew about the magic of the cup in the old days. You played football for the FA Cup, basically. There was World Cups and FA Cup. There wasn't anything in between, really, was there? Let's be honest. The yeah. FA Cup was everything. And I'd never really seen it besides that little glimpse with Harley Paul. And this, once we drew Arsenal, who were like the elite of the English game at the time, they were spending all the money and they were coming to our little ground at Bootham Crescent and there was a buzz all around York. And yeah, not nerves though. Definitely, you know, not nerves as in where you, you can't make yourself compete, you can't play, but definitely a, a anticipation in that, yeah. And you mentioned there that obviously the confidence within the group that they were coming to you and, and you know, you could yeah. maybe cause an upset. Did that sort of increase a little bit when when the pitch was like it was, you know, with all the snow? I bet Dennis would have argued he'd rather we had like a nice pitch so we could play as well, to be honest. Um, I, I don't think, I just think that was the way that it used to be in the old days. You never see it now anyway, do you? You very rarely see games snowed in and pitch cleared and stuff like it was. But it looks, it, it looks so dated when you look back now, doesn't it? Because the straw on the pitch and this crowd come in and clear it first thing in the morning and, you know, whether it would even get played, to be honest. I mean, because it was... Although I think the referee was looking for it to take a stud, but it only took a stud on one half of the pitch. It didn't take us the, the, the side of the pitch near towards the the, stand, the stand where the sun wasn't yet was solid, rock solid. But you know, we got the go ahead, didn't it? It was you know, got the go ahead. We played it. Yeah, and and, uh, both sides as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, of course it is. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, like I say, because we've played at lower levels and lower level football was one of the. Biggest shocks of my, I, I had no idea that lower level football was so hard at times, changing rooms and the pitches you had to play on and training facilities, all of that sort of thing. So it, it does make it harder for the big clubs. It is hard to go to a smaller ground because I did, I had it with Coventry, don't forget, we went to Sutton United and got knocked out and a lot of our lads just didn't know what it did them when they went into the little dress room and stuff that day. So there's lots there's lots of things in your advantage. Although the facilities at both weren't like that, they were, they were really good facilities. It was just the pitch really. I mean, I mean the penalty incident itself I mean it's such a stonewall penalty isn't it he's all over yeah. your back isn't he and really yeah. you're not even on the ball it's so naive no. did, did you sort of worry that maybe the ref might not have seen it well it was off the ball but I think the daft thing about it when I look back now and don't forget I've been a manager and a coach in that as well the foul continued for so long I set off and obviously I've got goal side of it and I'm running into the box doing exactly what I said to you earlier on in the conversation following the play to get in on the crosses and things but he kept on fouling me I mean I almost had to carry him at one stage because I wanted to get into the box I thought well you're going to carry on I'm not going down yet I could have gone down at any stage mm. and as soon as we were well into the box and he was still crying. It was it was like he was trying to climb on me. It was ridiculous, really. But yeah, you go down, and, and I, I think you, I've, if I've watched that. You, straight away, you spin around to see where the ref is, and uh, he was looking straight at us. I've spoke to that referee since actually, and he said I was watching it. So I was actually watching him and thinking, is he? You know, what's he doing? And then as soon as you went down, I had no doubt in my mind whatsoever. So you know, I've spun round, and he's looked at me, blew his whistle, pointed at the spot. Brilliant. <laughs> and, and once he's done that, I noticed that you're, you're sort of up straight away to go get the ball. Like you to take the penalty. Yeah. Was yeah. was John McPhail 
Was he a designate? It's sort of penalty taker around that time. I always took penalties wherever wherever I went. I, right. I've just had this discussion with it. There's a lad writing a book at Hibs, and I missed one in a, in a UEFA Cup tie at Hibs, and it was like, should somebody else do the penalty? But I, I always took penalty. It was a free goal. Yeah. I'd sta- I mean, I'd never embarrassingly stand there and argue, but I, I automatically used to get a ball for a penalty. I'm sure I, I was designated penalty taker at York City. I'm pretty sure. And Houchin, the man who was fouled, has put the ball on the spot. And he could put York City in dreamland here. It's all down to Lukic from the Arsenal point of view. And he's done it! The third division side score in the 90th minute. I never thought I was ever going to miss if I got one. It never even crossed my mind that I was going to miss. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. Was that something that you'd sort of planned in your head then? If we get a penalty, I'm going to go that way. Instant, yeah, we're not modern football. We don't write things on our shirts and whip them up underneath. We were just players, you know, and we were just basic footballers. That's what we were. That's what we did. No, no not not in, in any way, shape or form. I don't, I don't, no, we never even planned for a penalty. We never discussed it, you know, if we get a penalty or anything. So it just happened. And it just so happened. It was very, very, very late in the game, almost at the end of the game. A bit of a wait, wasn't there, between the, yeah, the, yeah, the penalty yeah. to when you were taking yeah, did that make, I mean, you said before you didn't really ever get nervous playing football, but yeah, did you feel yeah, any pressure yeah. with that? I felt the pressure. Yeah, I was aware of it all, and you know, the, and you know, I could see what they were doing. You know, one or two players were up to the ref, and then another one, and then the goalkeeper Lukic. And it was, it was, yeah, like you say, it was two or three minutes. It was a long spell to wait, and I could sense the anticipation in the air. Let's say. <laughs> And then obviously it was time to take it and it did go very, very quiet. But no, I never thought I'd miss. I really didn't. I gave him the eyes. It looked one way, went the other, stuck yeah. it perfectly. And uh, you know, as soon as I'd struck it, the, uh, you know, you can see when you're hitting a penalty, if the keeper's going the wrong way or whatever, and it's going in. And yeah, it was, and I was often, I think I struck it and I was often running because I knew it's, I knew it scored. Yeah. And I always thought Big Keith Warren would have jumped on me back, but I think it was Piercy or somebody, wasn't it? And Keith Warren came in a bit later. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what, what what was the changing room like after the game, and and how long did it take to sort? Of, uh, did, it, did it sink in straight away that you know you've beaten Arsenal? And I just think euphoric. I just think we were so. It was such a happy dressing room anyway, and you know, and it, like I said earlier on, I think it was a dressing room that was used to winning, so we weren't like massively shocked that we'd beaten Arsenal. I don't think it, that was the case. It was, I think, it was more a case of bring on the next one, who just happened to be Liverpool, I think, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think then the lads really fancied. That they could win that one. They really did fancy to win that one and should have actually should have won that first one without a doubt. Yeah, because I think a thigh injury kept you out of that game, didn't it? I mean, that must have been really frustrating after. Oh God, after it was. Yeah, game. yeah. I tore an adductor. Not. Oh, I was desperate, desperate to get fit and play in the Liverpool match, but just couldn't quite make it. Played in the second leg actually and shouldn't have. Uh, that was one of the biggest mistakes in my career. But just desperate to play in that match. But the lads were absolutely magnificent that day. We got. I mean. It, if it was VAR now, it wouldn't have been given. We'd be we'd be we'd be through one 0 because it was never a penalty. But yeah, yeah, but it was great. I mean, you can just imagine what it was like for me though. Being at York, we'd won the fourth division title and we were having cup runs and playing the Arsenal's and the Liverpool's. And all of a sudden, I was playing against the type of players and the type of teams with a team that was capable. It was it was just like you say it was the next chapter really for me definitely. Yeah. The next season was your last at York, but you were still scoring. Yeah. I mean, I looked at with envy. I have to say, you know, given who York City play these days, but you know, you got two against Bolton and a three 0 win. Uh, you scored against Wolves when we beat them two one. Another one against Derby. In the other interviews I've 
I've heard you sort of say about how much you loved your time at York, but why, why did it come to an end? Well, I, I started to argue a bit with Dennis because I wanted to be centre forward. And I think I, I probably, it was probably my fault. I think he saw me so versatile and he was he even started playing me as like left wing, right wing, that sort of thing. And I didn't want to do it. I really just wanted to be a centre forward. I wanted to get settled as a centre forward. We never, ever fell out, fell out me and Dennis like I did with some managers. But we, it was kind of, look, I think I just need to leave and I'll, I'll try something else. So, and um, the thing is what you have to remember, at, at that level, right from the first, maybe it's not the first division, but second, third, fourth division down, I was very, very sought after and I was getting lots and lots of calls from lots and lots of clubs. And it was like, what do you do? I was 25, coming up 26. Coming out of my pay, I'd never made any money as well, though. That was the thing. I'd never made any money. It was always mm. so, so difficult. You know, to pay the bills and things. You know, things you hear now. Never, I'd never made any money. Didn't have any money. And they were offering me good, you know, proper money. Frank Clark eventually, because I nearly went to Burnley and Bury, And there was just, I, I think there was a couple of clubs. But uh, my old coach from when I was a Chesterfield, Frank Barlow, he'd taken over at Scunthorpe with Bill Green, big centre, who was a big centre half, uh, who I'd known through, you know, through the careers. And they were talking to me, you know, they were ringing me and telling me, this is what we've got this ambitious project to do this with Scunthorpe, you know, we're going to do this and we're going to do this. And I don't know, I just thought it was time. And I, I did go on the list. And like I say, I spoke to a lot of people. I nearly went to Portville then as well. John Rudge was wanting me to go there. So I went to Scunthorpe, but even when I did it, I didn't feel like it was the right thing to do. You know, when you do something, you think, oh, oh yeah. shouldn't have done this. And I think that there was a bit of that in it, yeah. Was that almost immediately? Because I think almost they gave you like a £10,000 signing on fee, didn't yeah, they? So you're on about the money. Yeah, you can under- it was understand proper money. £10,000 in them days was, you know, you, you could buy a house for 25000 It was massive. It was like yeah. proper money. But oh, I think even after my first day, I think I because right. I, I, we stayed in York, we lived in York at Clifton, we, we had a house. First day back after training, I saw the facilities. Oh, certainly after my first couple of games, I said to him, oh, no, God, <laughs> I've made a big mistake. This is not, not I, I won't be a success here. It wasn't, this just wasn't right, set up and that wasn't right. I loved Frank Ballow. I always really liked Frank and Big Bill Green and people, but no, I just felt like it was a fourth division setup for fourth division players, and that wasn't what I was anymore. I wanted better than that, you know. I'm not trying to sound high and mighty or anything, but I just, yeah. And it, you know, at 25, you're running out of time, really, aren't you? If you're going to do it, it's time at least move up through the leagues a little bit. You know, we'll come on to that, won't we? I mean, you scored two and nine for Scumfort, and then I think there was a couple of reserve team games at the end of the season. You wanted to play in the first one because you were yeah. going on holiday for the That's second exactly one. It happened to be right, against yeah. Coventry. And a real yeah. sliding sliding doors moment, wasn't it? Because Coventry liked, is, yeah. liked the look of you, and, and, and the rest is history, yeah, isn't it? Definitely sliding doors. And yeah, it was exactly what happened. We came in at the end of the last game of the season and I was like, it'd been a long season. You used to get get really tired after game in the old days. Seasons were long and the pitches were heavy and then they went went really hard. You can imagine they went from really heavy to really hard and dry. You just used to be ready for a break, you know. And I I remember that season, I particularly had had enough and he came in and said, look, I need volunteers because we haven't got enough for these two reserve matches. And straight away I said, well, could I play in the first one, which was Coventry City. And uh, it was a last match and it was a lovely summer's evening and they were a big team. You know, they had a lot of the kids who were heard about were going to be first teamers and things. And I was ready for going on holiday, like you said. And so, yeah, just played really well that night. 
I, I was capable of that sometimes, playing really well. <laughs> you know, where you just, you know, when you do something and some days you just really, you just feel like it's easy and you're just good at it. Mm. Because it's not always, football could be, it was like any job. Sometimes you'd be really ploughing a long thing and, oh God, this is hard work. But just, yeah, I was good that night, played really well. And they, they'd been looking for a centre forward. They were obviously desperate to get a, a centre forward in. And that's how the Coventry move came about but Brian Hamilton Northern Irish manager and he'd always tried when I went to Scunthorpe he tried to sign me at Tranmere he was always desperate there was a couple of managers kicking around the leagues that always wanted me in their teams and I never got to play for them I did eventually play for John Roach and regretted it actually but I was I was, I was older then <laughs> um, and so he just took over at Leicester so you can imagine the clubs were right next door to each other, Coventry and Leicester. So he was ringing me desperate for me to go to Leicester. Because um, he took Fordy there, didn't he? You think Gary Ford signed he, for him? Gary Leicester. Ford went to Leicester. He did, yeah. yeah. Gary Ford went to Leicester. He did, yeah. Was that with Brian Hamilton? I think Brian so, Hamilton yeah. Him, did he? Yeah. So he probably fancied a couple of us. And I was supposed to go the, the, when the, we started talks and things. I was going to go to Coventry, stay there a night, have talks with them, stay there a night, drive over to Leicester, go and see Brian Hamilton and see what what the setup and everything was there. So I just fell in love with Coventry as soon as I walked through the door. As soon as I met John and George and at the uh, the old Highfield Road, which it was a state-of-the-art stadium in its day, Highfield Road. Mm. Uh, they had restaurant. I mean, can you imagine it coming from York City and Scunthorpe? They had, you know, we met in the restaurant above the car park in the main stand looking out on the all-seater 40,000 stadium sort of thing. You know, it was just different. I mean, jumping up uh, from the, the fourth division to the first, I mean, it's almost unheard of now, isn't it? Did, did you appreciate yeah. it a little bit more because you were a little bit older? You know, if that had happened, say, just so. for Crystal Palace at 18 or whatever, you, you might have always thought Maybe. it was like that. But, Maybe. but because yeah. you've been down yeah. the lower leagues, you, you kind of yeah. almost had a bit of an appreciation for the fact you were now at the highest level you could get. Uh, it was still a massive shock. I mean, massive to both of us. Wherever I went, Yvonne went, and we'd see, you know, we'd seen it all. And whatever my mood was, Yvonne's mood was, because you can't get away from it when you, you move around like we were. And I always remember us sitting in, we were in the Leah Frick Hotel. Uh, it's gone now, actually. It's it's student accommodation, isn't everything? Yeah. <laughs> and I lived there for about four months. But we, I remember us that first night, I'd had talks with them and stuff. And we were sat having dinner. And I said, let's order a bottle of champagne. <laughs> <laughs> and we bought we, we ordered a bottle of champagne. I said, I'm not going to speak to Brian tomorrow. I'm going to say, I said, they're not offering me very much. It was still amazing money. It was still, you know, you talk about the 10,000s and that. I think this was another 15, 20,000. But the basic wage wasn't a lot more than what I was getting. I was probably on 300 and they were offering me 350 but I just said this is a club for me I feel right here if this is where it's going to happen let's do it here you know? but yeah I remember sitting and having a little toast with a glass of champagne and everyone saying well this is the level you wanted to play at it's up to you now isn't it or words to that effect so and, and who could have predicted that season I mean it must, it must have been uh, you know pinching yourself at that moment no, just a few months before you, you're there thinking you know I've, I've regretted this move to Scunford it's not Smooth working out and, and then all yeah. of a sudden you've jumped up to the first division I mean it's incredible really yeah. I mean how yeah. did you find the jumping level before we go on to the FA Cup stuff I mean in terms of the, the levels of playing at the first division how, how did you find that step up oh I loved it uh, it was easier I found it easier. I really did. It was a great dressing room. And like I say, don't forget, I knew lads in the dressing room. Dave Phillips signed from Man City, so we spent a lot of time living together in the hotel. We forged a real bond before we even went back for pre-season training properly. And then I knew lads in the dressing room, big Steve Grozovic, 
had been a non-contract player at Chesterfield when I was there. So I knew Steve yeah. straight away. Played against Mickey Ginn a lot. Played against Dave Bennett a lot at different clubs. And it was just like York. It was the, just the warmest, friendliest atmosphere. Because they didn't expect a lot of themselves. They'd had four seasons, I think, of just avoiding relegation. It wasn't like they were Billy Big Timers or anything yeah. like that. They were all just great lads who'd, who'd, who'd worked their way through. Trevor Peake I played against a lot at Lincoln City, you know, big Brian Kilcline, Notts County. You just knew them all really but the setup the facilities and the, and the training that we did it was different and you knew you were just quickly and but I did I loved it I really loved it yeah I mean, I mean, the FA Cup goal is obviously, the, I would imagine, the pinnacle of your career, but the FA Cup yeah. run itself was really fruitful for you in front of goal. I mean, he scored at Old Trafford yeah. in front of all the Coventry fans. Phillips for Hutchin. Oh, it might fall for the Coventry man. It's in. 20 minutes gone. And Coventry take the lead through Keith Houchin, the man whose penalty for York City defeated Arsenal in the fourth round of the FA Cup two seasons ago. Two against Sheffield Wednesday in the quarter-final. Worthington, oh, it's folded in the path of Houchin! It's number three! It's all over now! And Houchin salutes the Coventry supporters! A lucky break, desperate situation for Wednesday, but that has wrapped it up now. A gift of a goal, his second of the match. It's Coventry three, Wednesday one, and for the first time, Coventry are looking at an FA Cup semi-final play against Leeds yeah. in the semi-finals. Where I think Coventry took twenty-seven thousand fans. I mean, that side must have had great confidence in winning the cup. But also, the FA Cup seemed to bring out the best in you. It did. I don't. And, and people have asked me this. Obviously, you can imagine. I get. I've been asked this yeah. so many times over the years. I mean, I got injured a lot that season. I got really badly injured. I'd hurt my foot training at York actually before pre-season I'd got glass in my foot which was quite a bad injury it took a long time to get over that and then we played Arsenal at home and I slid into Lukic of all people goalkeeper from uh, the penalty for York and I broke a couple of ribs so even that first season at Coventry it was almost like oh god is it is it going to happen but yeah it just seemed to be I think I played 21 games that season and scored seven goals which is if you look through my career it's one in three one in four so it was what I I always averaged I think really obviously had bad seasons and good seasons but it just seemed to be I don't know this FA Cup run started and I was just as I established myself back in the team again because they'd been playing with Dave Bennett and Cyril Regis up front and that was a really good combination it worked really well but um, I'd, I'd got back in I think Dave Bennett got injured I think the Man U match away we'd been away to Spain training and stuff and Dave Bennett got injured so I only knew quite late that I was playing in the Man U match away and obviously played really well that day me and Cyril and I think that's when they started to see that because obviously managers and coaches that you wouldn't naturally put especially nowadays you wouldn't put two big centre forwards together no that's the thing do you know what I mean and it was like a big that, mad little man wasn't it in those days yeah or, or was that sort of thing yeah I think we actually did work a bit like that Cyril didn't have a great engine he couldn't run the lines and come back in and then get in the box he had to just explode Cyril he had to literally be dead explosive you know mm. so we did work almost like big man little man but I was the big little man <laughs> Yeah, so you complimented each other. We certainly complimented each other, yeah. And we never lost any. You can imagine we didn't lose anything in the air. So it was a it was a given. If I was going up to flick it on, Cyril was in behind and vice versa. 
And it, it, yeah. yeah, it did it. it. It worked really well, but obviously worked better in these cup runs. You've asked me before about feelings and stuff. That cup run, every game was different to anything I'd, that any of us had ever played in, and you could feel it days mm. and days and days before they came around and they were different. I mean, the final itself, I mean, it, the, the cup seemed to just mean a lot more back then, didn't it? There wasn't any weekend yeah, teams. Uh, you know, they had the FA Cup song, I mean, and the suits, etc. And everyone yeah. watched it, didn't they? There wasn't as much like football back then, so everyone kind no. of... Focus on the FA Cup. It started final. first thing in the morning. I think it was about 10 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. You started watching the build-up to the FA Cup in the old days. Yeah, you did. Did you afford yourself to sort of chance to take all that in? Every single bit, yeah. I was up about five o'clock in the morning. The dawn, we, we stayed at a hotel right by the river. And just as the light was coming up, I was up. I went, And I wasn't, you know, you were asking me earlier about being nervous and stuff. I wasn't yeah, yeah. nervous, but I was just ready. I just wanted the day to start. So I got some kit on. I went and found some kit and had a jog around the grounds. And I was, you know, I had to jog along the river and back around to the hotel just wondering you know you can imagine if it was you put yourself in that situation just wondering what's this day going to bring is it because you knew it was going to be an amazing day you knew it was going to be fantastic you know the Wembley Way drive and your first time out on the pitch with the suits all of that you know I was just asking myself what is the day actually going to bring going for a jog you know might have released some sort of any sort of tension oh definitely definitely tension nervous energy without shadow of a doubt did that yeah and then me and Dave Phillips who's obviously roommates we we were the first at breakfast really early maybe seven o'clock or something and then they all started to drift down you know you can imagine the buzz the hotel was as full of reporters and news uh, people as it was of, of us so it, it, you just got caught up in it then quite early on in the day it was ready to go you know yeah I mean what, what was it like coming out of the tunnel I mean there was 96,000 people there the, that must have been incredible right. you know the scenes yeah. of sort of blue and, and, and the scarf yeah. and like that. it must have been yeah. incredible to be part yeah. of yeah just like you'd imagine yeah exactly exactly it was always sunny wasn't it cup finals always yeah, used yeah. to be sunny and it was just, uh, when, the old Wembley was a slope so you came in through these massive big double doors with your bus and your dressing rooms were out of the side and it was a really long dark tunnel that, that sloped up about 45 degrees maybe I'm exaggerating before, but sloped up and you could see at the top just a, a little square of light and that's literally what it was like so when you did walk up the tunnel and out it literally lifted you off your feet it, the noise and the colour and the spectacle literally carried you along to the halfway line can you imagine it was a year after sign of the scum thought was something wasn't it <laughs> I'm walking out at Wembley and like you say 9,800,000 people millions watching and we were, about, and we were playing Tottenham always been one of my favourite sides Tottenham for some reason don't ask me why but they're the cup teams aren't they they're one of the well, FA the, teams I've, I've got that down as my next thing that you know it was a real strong Spurs I mean even even for someone like me who was born in the early 80s, I mean, like, you know, Hoddle, Waddle, Ozzy Ardiles. Yeah. I think it was the season yeah. Clive Allen scored 49 goals. You know, that was yeah. a formidable opponent to have on oh, the day, wasn't you it? What? And we found out about Clive Allen very early, don't yeah. we, about that? <laughs> Seven but the were, they were just a fantastic team, fantastic players, wonderful players. I mean, probably two of the best players I've ever been on the same pitch with, Glenn Hoddle and Chris Waddle. And then you had Ardiles and that as well, don't, you know, into the equation. And you had Ray Clements, one of the greatest goalkeepers that's ever lit. I mean, it was just, yeah. I mean, I mean, we were aware of that. Don't think, you know, we were aware of that, but we knew we were good as well. We had Cyril, one of the greatest centre forwards has ever been. So, you know, we had our, we had our own as well. And, and the goal itself, to, to, you know, that, that you equalised with. I mean, you mentioned Cyril there. I think it was his flick on, wasn't it, originally? Yeah, Cyril flicked it you on. Know, you yeah. said he, you, you both won everything in the air. He won it in the air. Yeah. You did a layup. I've got him behind him. Yeah. Cr- cross yeah. from Dave Bennett. I mean, obviously, it must be, just be instinctive, that diving header. But, Definitely. But, I mean, incredible yeah. effort. And Two, two, with a 
ridiculous goal. Yeah. Memories of that. The stuff itself is something you'd coach. I mean, get him behind, you know, one forward, get him behind the other, look for your winger, and then change your position as quickly as you can, which was basically getting from the front post to the back post. But scoring the goal was instinctive. Of course it was, yeah, because the ball's flying in. I mean, it's all split-second stuff, isn't it? And, you know, the only way you can get there really is to dive and head it. You see some people go with their feet and just miss sometimes, don't you? You see a lot of that sort of thing. And I was there in plenty of time. All of that was perfect timing. And then it's getting it on target, obviously. I do think that. I mean, can you imagine if I'd done all of that, got it everything right and then headed it wide we'd be talking about this all them years later where you nearly won the FA Cup you just yeah. got that header on target sort of thing but it didn't I mean it was a perfect I, once I was there I, I don't think I was going to miss I think if you look at the photographs my eyes are wide open and I've said you can almost see a little smile on my face I'm not sure where that's true I mean but he, he was never, you saw any diving headers before I mean got a lot of headers before but I didn't know whether, yeah. whether it was something that you yeah I scored diving headers and that yeah I've got a yeah. I got a photograph from early in the, somebody just sent me recently from very early in the season season we played Arsenal at home and I hurt my ribs and I'm in almost the same position I've got a photograph of me heading the ball it actually hits the post and runs across the goal and Nick Pickering scores for us uh, Arsenal at home at, at Highfield Road and it's almost an identical photograph with a different kit on but yeah Yorks I think I got one at York City and Exeter or somewhere like that I did score yeah I scored diving headers I'd score with anything yeah. I remember a diving header at Hibs where I missed it with my head and got it with my fist but nobody ever you know we don't talk about that <laughs> I mean, one thing I noticed sort of looking looking back at the footage was that you almost sort of celebrated on your own when you yeah, scored that goal. In the I final. did. Yeah, you credit one of I it. Did. It's probably the greatest FA Cup final goal of all time. And, and you're know, running over the, over the sort of barriers and I stuff. Know, and there's no one there with you. I think was Definitely. that people were sort of a bit knackered, just, really, a bit tired. Just though. knackered and scared. Yeah, we've discussed, because we get together a lot, all of that. Yeah. We discuss, and I see Nick Pickering, and Nick Pick's really close to me. Nick Pickering's behind me. Nick Pickering swears that he showered, dive, how she die. In fact, he finishes off every conversation like that with me now, if we're leaving, he always shouts, dive, how she die. Nick Pick and Mickey Jim were quite close to me. I, I literally hit the ground, bounced up and sprinted. And I've never reacted like that with a goal before or since, really. Sprinted away from the, from the pitch and over the towards the stand and jumping up and down and they started to Nick Pick and Mickey Jin said we were close we were close but Dave Bennett was just stood and one or two others had already gone to Dave and it was easy we thought well we looked at you when you were sprinting away and we looked at Dave Bennett and we thought right we'll take the easy route here save our legs mm-hmm. a bit yeah and then but slow, you know I can, you can imagine for like two three minutes they were slowly jogging over to me saying what a goal out you what a goal out you but I did celebrate on my own yeah Mentioned Dave Bennett very good. I mean, it was a fantastic cross as well, wasn't it? I mean, it was yeah, really, it was a great football. Exactly where you'd want as a striker, I imagine it, yeah, exactly in the spot perfect. you'd want it to be. Yeah, well, between the defenders and the goalkeeper, and then obviously you're coming in over there. It's very, very difficult to defend. It's just great. I've got some great photographs of it. I've got Cyril stood on the edge of the box. He's actually heading it with me. There's a really good one of Chris Hooten, who's just he's the closest defender to me, but he's literally just throwing his head back and screaming at the sky because he's it's like ah, oh, you know. I think said it was uh, the finest cup final he'd ever commented on. Yeah, I think it had everything. And I I think the secret for that game was both teams just went out and absolutely went out to win it. We never discussed once about how we would hold them and how we would try and stop them playing or, or anything like that. Everything we did in the build-up was how, how we could win the game. And Tottenham never stopped trying to win the game. It was I mean, literally from the first... I mean, they scored, didn't they? After about four minutes, did Clive Allen got his... I mean, Clive Allen's header was a mate. As a centre-forward, if you were coaching and stuff, if you're with your coach's head on, their first goal was an incredible goal. It gets a bit overlooked, I think. What was a fantastic goal. And we couldn't you couldn't have defended it. You couldn't have stopped it. And that was four minutes. Minutes into a cup, into your great biggest game of your career, so, um, 
So the way that the, the lads set themselves again for that match and didn't crumble and didn't fall was just testament to them, really. But I think the truth is that we both just went out to try and win the game. And I've watched cup finals over the years where both teams have gone out and tried not to lose the game. There's a massive difference. Yeah. There's a massive yeah, difference yeah. in how you're going to play and how it comes over as a spectacle for people to watch, you know. It looked to me like Coventry sort of broke that side up fairly quickly after that. Too final, quickly, which, yeah. Which was yeah. a bit of a shame. I mean, do you look back on yeah. that as, you know, think that, that was a massive mistake? It was a big mistake, yeah. That's what, I mean, John, God bless him, has just died before Christmas as well, John Sillett. But it was a conversation I had with him, yeah, breaking the team up too soon and trying to play differently, trying to turn us into something we weren't too quickly, really, I think got a bit carried away with all of that but it's just difficult isn't it these things happen I think the way that we were set up and the way that we played you could have give that team a good run for another two or three years and see what it was capable of but once you brought David Speedy and it was a good friend of mine actually David just a different character and a different type of player to the way that mm. We were doing things, and, it, and it, Dave never let anybody down. And I was a fantastic player. Yeah, just change the dynamics. It was a change of dynamics. It was just different. Yeah, yeah, it was different. And we do say that Nick Picks was. The, I think Nick Picker was the first to go. He left and went to Derby quite quickly. And he we, we played golf with Nick not so long ago. And Nick's it's one of the things he says. John got it wrong. He should have kept that side and just let it be for a bit. It's what mm. uh, Brian Clough used to do with his great sides, wasn't it? He never broke them up. I mixed them up for years, did he? He got it. He just got a team of eleven with a couple of subs and played them didn't he you went to Hibs which I know ended a bit sour but no I look back at some of the goals you scored I mean you scored on your debut against their arch rivals hearts you scored home yeah. and away against Rangers played yeah. and scored in Hungary in Europe against I think Video Tom I think they were called I mean they must have been I did, had a career, great career highlights for you absolutely loved it uh, and I knew not again knew nothing about it when I went my big move when I was leaving Coventry and it had been going on for months and months was I was going to QPR it was all set up I'd done the talks I'd been down to see him and that fell through right at the last minute and I've got to be honest, I didn't fancy living in London again I, after the Orient thing. That, and I, I, I just wanted to travel. I wanted to stay in Coventry and travel and stuff. But anyway, that ended up falling through. And I actually thought it was a wind-up when I got the first phone call because the deadline had passed, but the Scottish deadline was a week later or something. And I thought it was one of our lot. I thought it was honestly thought it was one of the lads when I got the call of Alec Miller. You're going to come to Hibs and play for me, you know, Lousy. Who is it? You know, who the hell is it? But I did. I absolutely loved it. And I think I performed better when I didn't know what I was going into. I think that was just the way I was that I was when I was playing football. I remember I literally jumped on the plane at East Midlands, got off in Edinburgh. They took me to my hotel. I got up the next day. The, I think I had one day's training. He was obsessed with me heading the ball. That's why he'd sign me. We did this, we set this free kick up where I came round the back late and Neil Law played it into the far post. That was the only bit of training we did. And they were saying, get ready, big man. Everyone, everyone's big man or little man in Scotland. Get ready, big man, because you you have never seen you might have played in Cup Final and things the lads were saying to me but you've never played in anything like this and I had no idea that it was a hip heart derby obviously God, my God, it was like going to war. I needed an iron lung after about 20 minutes. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. And the atmosphere was so volatile and loud and God, it was unbelievable. But the free kick that we'd set up actually came off first time ever. Went in late, half spun round the back, coming over the top with the two big guys, Irving and the other lad, and headed in the top corner. And the play, I'd never seen anything like it. I was turned around to celebrate with my teammates and they were gone. They were climbing on the railings and they were throwing things into the crowd and it was just, you know, it was another world, really was. But I loved it. I loved my time at Hibs, did love it, yeah. And the, and the goal you got against, I've not seen the one that you got at Ibrox, but I managed to find the one you got at home at yeah, Easter Road goal. against them. I mean, it, yeah. it, it, there was a crowd of players there and you sort of kind of known for your, for your heading and stuff like that, but great feet, wasn't quick it? Feet. Sort of, yeah, quick feet. Yeah, quick feet. in the corner, it was, it was a really yeah. good goal. We used to get fantastic 
fantastic atmosphere. I mean, Easter Road was a great place to play. Wonderful atmospheres. And everywhere was always full. For me, anyway, it had to be a timescale in Scotland because you, it, it was it was all a bit too much. And there was only about 10 teams in the top tier. So you played each other four times, twice away, mm. twice at home. And it was very intense. And you were always playing against the same teams. So if it was any kind of bad blood, it kind of intensified. My first season at Hibs was absolutely amazing. Absolutely loved it. Fantastic. And I was really popular. You're right. The crowd were really, really big houchy houchy fans but I suppose it's like that when it turns sour it turns sour really quick and quite badly so we did and I never I, I never really got on with uh, Alec Miller who scored me I thought he was a bit too intense and a bit too school teacherly and that sort of thing you know but it was great yeah I had a couple of seasons and that first season I would say probably my best season of my career I would say I was at my yeah I would say so I was at my fittest I was at my strongest I, there was nothing left to learn if you like and it was and everything came together and we had a pretty decent side we had a really good side yeah yeah it was a bit so, like yeah. Collins weren't coming through at that time. Johnny Collins was, was, was really in good career. Johnny, yeah. yeah. We had uh, Steve Archibald played alongside me when I first went there. Really dry sense of humour. He was a funny bloke. But yeah. Top, top footballer. No, it was, it was good times. Andy Gormingo. And when we talked, talked about sort of some of some of the best goals you've scored, I mean, I know Port Vale probably wasn't the best spell of your career, but I, I saw, saw a goal that you got against Wolves, which was must have been about 30 yards out where you just sort of blasted it over the goalkeeper. Um, I, I, never, I never got that goal officially either. There's a couple of goals in my career that got taken off me that's sticking you know and they're just sticking your cronium why did they take that off me yeah I lobbed the keeper from about 30 yards yeah. at uh, Molyneux yeah I did I don't think they gave me that goal I might be wrong but I thought that, that, that had that taken off me but yeah I mean I always have a spare I mean I loved it at Port Vale as well I absolutely loved being there I don't know what it was with me to be honest I think I just used to uh, my second season or halfway through my second season I used to get restless I don't know what it was I don't know why it was I think if I could have the head I have now at 60 and go back to being 24 my career would be different but then when I do look back in it I wouldn't change any of it I wouldn't yeah. change a thing I wouldn't change a thing no. and you finished your career back at Hartlepool you know back where it all began yeah, wasn't yeah. it full, sort of career full, going circle. full circle yeah and yeah. it was under I think Viv Busby to start with and then John McPhail so, yeah. so a couple of York City leagues in there as yeah. well like you say it was probably meant to be wasn't it full circle signed for Viv but it never worked out for Viv they never never really took to Viv the supporters at Hartley. the real if there's a, all the places I've played over the years the hardest ones to play is Hartlepool United let me tell you and if they didn't like you they didn't like you that was it oh, they could like you one week and hate you the next yeah we did and then John and uh, and Alan here Will uh, John, uh, John McPhill and Alan here had a little double act for a while there but it's a difficult place at the time Harleypool never never ever enough money you know players not getting paid and you know that sort of thing it was uh, we used to queue after games at one stage uh, for the takings I, I think I was the highest player going back I was last in the queue so you'd finish get shower and go into the corridor and you could see them all walking out with the wages and by the time I got there sometimes it was 50p's and one pound coins that you couldn't pick up <laughs> so you'd leave them you'd leave them yeah and I'd go in and say you you haven't left your wages have you I said well I couldn't carry them <laughs> not that I was weird you know not that I was a multi-millionaire or anything but you know that's how it was it was just hard place to Hartlepool was a hard place to play at and a hard place to coach at and a hard place to manage at in them days well, I've, I've got that down here that, you know, you eventually became manager in 1995, but it sounds to me that it was probably the right job for your first in management, but the wrong time yeah. because of the finances. Yeah. Are you almost sort of bitter looking back how it ended with Hartlepool? Because given what you had achieved in your career and, and, and what you'd achieved at Hartlepool, it, it seemed to me sort of reading up on it that you almost a bit unappreciated yeah. really I think yeah you know everything fades with time doesn't it and I, looking back I'm quite blase and stuff but it was soul destroying it was uh, it was absolutely soul destroying because I was working so 
so hard to make a success of it. And I'd been there in 77, don't forget, and it was so unprofessional. You know, all these old pros that didn't care and the facilities were bad. And it was an unprofessional club and I was determined to make it a professional club, you know, me and Mick Tate. And I was massive. I was very principled. I, I would never back down from my principles. I could have had a much easier life right through my career if I hadn't been so principled. But uh, yeah, I just worked so, so hard. I was you know, hardly home. I was watching players. I was signing players. I was looking mm-hmm. after players. I was and taking the still playing training. as well, weren't you? I was playing. Yeah. Uh, I'd been told to stop. I got a real bad knee injury and they said, look, you're going to be really struggling later in life if you don't stop playing. But I didn't have any money to buy another centre forward, so I was still playing. And I mean, I was doing everything. I was even, you know, I was paying for pre-match meals because the chairman wouldn't. I'd be saying, lads, lads, you don't need another round of toast. You can imagine <laughs> what's the matter with the gaffer or oh, we're having these some rounds of toast. So I was flipping paying. That's why, you know, that sort of thing. And people just don't realise what you are doing at a club like yeah. that. Supporters don't. And, and I was there to be shot at, really. And there was a couple of players that the crowd really, really liked, the goalkeeper we had in particular. And they're clever, you know, people. He'd finish a game get his bollocking off me or whatever and then he'd go and sit in the supporters bar with the supporters and the, you know I was Adolf Adolf Houchin they used to call me I'd get the most awful letters and mm. you know people and things and it was just and I just wanted to make a success of it and I signed some really good players I could see players that could be players I mean Big Henderson that I, that I got from Tau Law finished up playing in the Premier League and stuff got him for nothing mm. don't forget but I think I just put too much into it I don't think I wanted to be a manager and I'm glad looking back that I wasn't successful because I wouldn't have liked to have done another 20 years my 20 years as a pro professional footballer was everything that I wanted it to be and I wouldn't change any of it and I think in a way looking back if I had been more successful it, it would have, you'd have started the whole process over again, wouldn't you? Because you see managers, they won't stop, will they? Might be managing in the Premier League and then five years later, they might be managing at Hartlepool. It just happens, doesn't it? They can't get off the merry-go-round it and it's a difficult one to come off as a footballer. And I didn't, I, I had had enough, but I left very disillusioned with it. I wish I could have left on a higher note my, on my terms and stuff. I mean, I did leave on my terms. I literally left 20 minutes from the end of the game. We were playing Brighton at home and their chairman was called Houghton and they brought a big crowd. So half the stadium was shouting Houghton out and the other half was shouting Houchin out. It sounded like the whole stadium was shouting Houchin out. Can you imagine? And I'd had enough and I literally said to my physio, who was a good friend of mine, I just said, I'm going now, I've had enough. He said, don't go yet. See the guy. I said, nah. Bad enough. And I literally walked, yeah, got in the car, went home, and that was it. That was me finished with football. Never, ever went back to football ever again. 687 games, 184 goals. You said before you wouldn't have changed anything. Is, and is that the same with the management then? Did, did sort of looking back with hindsight, but actual fact, it was a good think, thing. Things happened for a reason, and that's all. Yeah, that's definitely. All that wasn't for uh, yeah. you. And- I don't think it's for anybody. I don't think anybody should do that. It's the worst way to make a little kiss. It's just an awful, awful way. It's just not good for you mentally or physically, I don't think, managing. It can see it's all consuming. You never, ever, ever switch off from it. You'd think you were watching TV and you're actually drawing, you're actually writing formations out and things and little bits of paper, that sort of thing. But no, I I totally agree with you. I I wouldn't change anything. I wish it hadn't finished like it did because I've never been back to Hartlepool either and obviously a big part of my life was a part of Hartlepool United never yeah. been back through the gates once for a testimony because I did say to the chairman look I'm, I, I'll go it's just easier for everybody just give me a testimony I think I deserve one my knee was complete so I couldn't even, I was so fit at the time as well but if I hadn't damaged my knee so badly I probably could have gone and played for another three or four years I was really really fit and we had a testimonial and I think about 2,000 people turned up it was really dis- the whole thing was disappointing really but yeah like you say everything's for a reason isn't it and I, I certainly didn't want to stay in football in any capacity really I'd seen every side of it I'd had my fill of it and and I loved it and it, yeah. you know and I'll never be anything but Keith Houch in the footballer 
I, I, you know, people still say to me now, you know, you say, well, I was a footballer actually a long time ago. I'm not a footballer now because they say you're Keith Ouch and the footballer. <laughs> you know, anytime someone scores a diving header, you know, pe- people mention your name every time, you know, it comes up to FA yeah. Cup third round, York City fans remember your penalty. Every time the FA Cup final's on, you know, so it must be great it that you, yeah. you have those moments that you never, oh, amazing. Sort of, you never, you're not a footballer who's ever forgotten. Amazing. It was a hard time to play football through the 70s in particular, 70s and 80s. And football was just transitioning and changing as I, you know, I was 36, I think, by the time I did retire, player manager at Harleypool. And it was changing and it was changing for the better. Football slowly changed for the better as you guards facilities and pitches and stadiums and everything for the supporters now is incredible, isn't it? It was as hard for supporters in the old days as it was for the players. It was just wasn't pleasant, really. It wasn't going into an old football stadium. And for players now, it's, it's just incredible, isn't it? The amount of money that he, we do say that we have a laugh. The amount of money that I could have earned doing what I did when we won the cup and stuff. I mean, I think this teams go there with a million pound bonuses, isn't there? Ours was about two and a half grand each to win to win the FA Cup. I think Tottenham were on 10 grand a man win, lose or draw that day so you can see the difference in things but no I'm perfectly happy with what I did perfectly happy yeah. with the era that I, I think I played in the best era I think in a, I played in the era when, when men were men but they were playing a lot of football as well the 70s men were men trying to kill each other and there was a lot of football getting played the 80s there was a lot they were starting to innovate and they were starting to play some real good football and facilities were getting better that sort of thing so I wouldn't change it no I wouldn't change anything incredible people along the way I wouldn't change any of the things that I did or any of the people that I met. I mean, look, looking back at who who would be the sort of best player you ever played with and against, would you say? I mean, I would have to include lads from York, John Burnham. I never saw anybody, you know, I played with Cyril who scored the, he, he was like a, a burst of energy where he'd scored these goals out of nothing, just blast it in. But that's what Keith Walwyn used to do. Yeah. Anybody who can remember Keith Walwyn, and I'm you not know, speaking out of turn saying he had the worst touch that anybody I ever played with. His first touch was awful. But then he'd spin and hit, or he'd run and hit a ball from 20 yards like nothing you've ever seen. And it was just, so that sort of thing. And then I played with people like Trevor Peake, who never never got an England cut, never got an England, big Steve Grozovic, as good a goalkeeper as you will ever see anywhere at, at any time. And then you know, just little players like Mickey Jin, never seen anybody like it. You know, you know, I always say Mickey's the one who was the dog who runs and gets your ball in the park and he's just off with the ball and you can't get him off. Johnny Collins, just a wonderful footballer. Was there any sort of defender that you, you hated ever? ever playing against or? I like to play against the nice defenders who were good footballers and didn't like to kick you I think Richard Goff has gone on record as saying I was the best centre forward he ever played against because he said he said I knew he'd, if he was going to out jump me he'd just win the ball really cleanly he wasn't thumping me on the side of the head with his head or the back there because he didn't he didn't need to because he was heading it cleanly and I would probably say somebody like Richard Goff was my favourite type of defender to play against because if, if he was going to tackle me he'd tackle me really cleanly if he beat me in the head, come over me really cleanly and stuff. I played against monsters in 1977 when I was a kid. I played against some absolute monsters. They were tackling me around my neck and everything. You can imagine Sam Allardyce and people like that. Dearly, dearly me, no. Don't get away with it now. Just to sort of bring it to, bring it to a close, I, I noticed that I spoke to Dean Kiley on the, on the podcast and he was saying that you were a big influence on him to sort of come to your... I just wondered whether you remembered having that conversation with Dean. He was a young up-and-coming goalkeeper at Coventry City and you're looking to get... It's a bit like me Harleypool and, and I could always see when they were they were hungry and they were looking to get started and they needed to make the next step and I was always really fortunate and that sounds weird isn't it but I'd seen everything I'd seen the worst of everything and I'd seen the best of everything I'd played at the worst level I'd played at the highest level I'd just 
I'd seen everything. So if they asked me, and someone like Dean would, you know, he wouldn't know anything about York. City Football Club or anything and I would always say to anybody I know I did it with Kev Smith as well when he was at Covent with me I just said look it's the nicest city in the world to live in you won't live anywhere better than York it's just a fantastic city to live in but it's a wonderful football club it's a great little atmosphere as a, it's a great stadium to play at and I always used to say it's one of them crowds that don't hurt you that don't get on your back and they're nasty because a lot of football crowds especially the low league ones where there's not that many of them can be really nasty and, and really put you off your game and stop you from progressing. And I always felt like York, you could go and build there. So I would remember, yeah, and I do remember giving him advice now, yeah. And he had a great career, didn't he, Dean? Yeah, I mean, he's still, career, he's still yeah. going. He's got, he's had a great coaching career. I see him on the bench a lot. Yeah, I see, yeah. I, I do see lads around about on the bench and that. He was a confident young man, let's say. Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad that he did. I'm glad I gave him some advice. That's great. I do occasionally get people saying, oh, your advice was great. And I say, oh, well, thanks, yeah. But I did get to see quite a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, Keith, it's been absolutely fantastic to hear your, your insights and your yeah. career going back over your stories and you know I hope, hope you've enjoyed it as well I have really enjoyed it because you don't think about your career that much just in everyday life it's when you get talking and things like this like we are today Dan and uh, it all comes back to you because you know it doesn't come in front of your mind that often I'll be remembering things all day now thinking oh we should have spoke about that or we should have spoke about that <laughs> well you're always welcome to do a part two it's been, it's been super yeah. okay thank, thank you yeah. very much no I've enjoyed it thank you very much So I hope that was worth a wait for everyone. I know it's been sort of six months since the last season finished. So we're up to series eight now. It's really good to be back, but it's, it's taken a bit of a while to put this one together due to work commitments and other things kind of going on. So I appreciate your patience and hope that people are still wanting to listen to these podcasts. I was always desperate to get Keith Houchin on the podcast. He's, you know, such an iconic figure for York City fans and scorer of arguably the most famous York City goal in history. So it was really good to get him onto the podcast and I think he enjoyed it. He sent me a text later on to say how much he'd enjoyed it. I think kind of reminiscing of his time at York City is clear to me, but I'm sure to you guys now, but how passionate he is about the club and how much he enjoyed his time with York City. Also, a huge thank you to York Gin for sponsoring this episode. We're going to sponsor the next episode as well. If you're a York City fan and you want some YCFC gin, you can put in YCFC10 at the checkout on their website and that will get you a discount. Probably a good time to mention that, that we've got another live event coming up. The Richard Brody event was really successful, and, and you know, I was really keen to put another one on. And uh, you know, what better th- than to do it with three heroes from Wembley twice? So, we've got Scott Kerr, Michael Ingham, and Dan Parsler, who's going to join us on the 20th of May. That's a Friday night at Haxley Sports Bar, which is going to be 10 years to the day since York City beat Luton Town. So, I think it's going to be a great night. Tickets are only seven pounds, all going to charity, split between ourselves and, and the headwear charity for Dan Parsler. So, really looking forward to it. If you just go to a Eventbrite, type in hospital ball in the search bar, it should come up. And if not, just your hospital ball, Wembley twice, and again, you should, should be able to find it. Details are on our Twitter page and, and uh, Facebook as well. I wouldn't leave it too late for the tickets either because uh, we've already sold more than we did for the Richard Brody event and um, there seems to be going at a pretty decent pace. So if you're eyeing up to come to it, I think it's better to get it sooner rather than later. You don't have to pay initially. It's just registering on, on Eventbrite and then someone from Hospital Radio will be in touch to, to kind of get payment late, later down the line. 
So finally, just to say, Hospital Ball, back up and running now. We'll have another episode, hopefully by the back end of the week, with Chris Smith, who two spells with York City, one that ended with York City going out of the Football League, and then, of course, he was captain when we got back in it. So his is a really good listen, really honest and open about his time in both spells and his career in general, and lots of things that even as a, I class myself as a fairly big York City fan, even stuff that I didn't even know about and, and things that were, that were kind of very revealing. So hopefully that kind of whets the appetite for that episode and you'll be able to hear that sort of the back end of a week. So thanks again for listening.